Welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. My name is Rich Forsland, and I'm a consultant advisor here at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. In speaking to the consulting firms that I work with, many are discussing the shift in corporate behavior because of COVID-19, particularly with everyone working from home. Another aspect that has come up has been the importance of technology and the growing reliance in the cloud. So with that in mind, I'm really pleased to be joined by my two colleagues, Susan Bao, U.S. Equity Portfolio Manager, and Mark Ferguson, Global Head of Research for Equities. Mark recently launched a white paper on the digital transformation and the shift to public cloud. I want to provide a little bit more background on our speakers today, though. Susan has been at the firm for 23 years and has been an integral PM on our U.S. equity strategies. Currently, she manages the large cap core plus 13030, tax war equity, and large cap equity SMA strategies. Mark has also been at the firm for over 20 years, always in research. He was a financials analyst in Europe, Asia, and emerging markets, was head of emerging markets research for almost 10 years, and is now the global head of research for equities. Susan and Mark, thanks for joining me. Good morning, everyone. Great to be here. Thanks, Rich. Morning, everyone. Great. So over the next 30 to 40 minutes, we'll have a discussion about COVID-19, the equity markets, and the findings from the white paper. So with that, let's get started. Mark, let's begin the conversation with you. Talk to us about the goal of the paper and some of the high-level themes that have emerged from it. Great. Thanks, Rich. So maybe just to start with some very quick background, as many of you are hopefully aware, we have a large team of fundamental equity analysts, so around 90 analysts across the world covering emerging markets and developed markets, around 17 years average industry experience, between them covering about 2,500 stocks. Now, these analysts, they work very closely with the respective portfolio managers in each region, such as Susan. But at the same time, we also organize them into 17 global sector teams. And that's something that we think gives us real sort of additional insights and competitive advantage. So with that backdrop, after the COVID crisis began, we tasked these sector teams with really thinking very carefully about some of the longer term consequences of COVID, what we expect to see change, what would stay the same, etc. And I think and that's been the theme of this series of, of talks that we've done over the last three weeks. I think that If I was to sum it up in one line, I would say the main conclusion that's come out of all of it is, in most cases, we see an acceleration of existing trends. So we don't see a lot of very new trends coming as a result of COVID, but we do see a lot of existing trends accelerating. And that's true in terms of consumer behavior, which is something we discussed a couple of weeks back. I think it's true in terms of relations with society at ESG, which is something that Jennifer and Leon discussed on the call last week. And then I think it's also true with respect to some of the trends around business resilience and corporate behavior, which is the topic for this week's call. So I I would say more specifically on that, there are three themes that I want to draw out in that area. The first one, as Rich alluded to earlier, is around cloud computing and specifically an accelerated shift to the public cloud, which we're seeing as a result of COVID. But the second main theme is around localization or, if you like, diversification of supply chains. And related to that is an important theme of factory automation, which is, again, something that we've seen accelerated as a result of the crisis. And then finally, this whole idea of strong companies getting stronger, which I think as as we go through and come through more examples, we'll see, again, how the COVID crisis has led to that outcome as well. So I'll stop there. Those are the high-level themes, and I think we'll hopefully be able to explore them in much more detail over the next 20, 30 minutes or so. 
That's fantastic, Mark. Susan, maybe let's turn it over to you. How have the themes that Mark outlined just now affected your thinking as an investor? Thanks, Rich. I think Mark summarized the themes very nicely. And I agree with Mark. Many of the secular trends we're about to discuss today are not new. And they were underway well before the pandemic. And COVID is just a catalyst that triggered a behavioral change and a change we think that's sustainable. And let me give you an example. On last quarter's conference call, Microsoft CEO stated, as COVID-19 impacts every aspect of our work and life, and we have seen two years worth of digital transformation in two months. And what Sadia said is not unique. We have heard similar comments from many companies across many industries, ranging from grocery delivery to digital entertainment to financial services. And speaking of financial services, digital payment is another example. To online shopping and from a physical cash, which is dirty and inconvenient, to cashless, we have seen faster adoption of digital payment. And Dan Shellman, the CEO of PayPal, he said three to five years of secular trends have happened in a very condensed period. And also, it wasn't that long ago, PayPal aims to add three to five million new users per quarter. They added 7.4 million just in the month of April. And they may add total 20 million new users in the second quarter, which is four times more than normal. And also on the supply chain side, which we're going to talk about in a second, we noticed some companies were caught off guard during COVID. And there's an increasing need for digital access to manufacturing plans, such as remote monitoring and remote control. So as investors, it's very clear to us that in the wake of pandemic, companies with a greater digital presence, flexible supply chain, and healthier balance sheet will emerge from this crisis even stronger. And the opposite is also true for structurally challenged companies. So to echo Mark's point earlier, we have many analysts with boots on the ground across the world helping us unpack these trends from an individual stock perspective. It's more important than ever to focus on bottom-up fundamentals. That's great. Thanks so much, Susan. Mark, maybe we can go back to the first topic of your paper, the increase in public cloud spending and cloud penetration. How is your research team thinking about the scale and duration of public cloud migration and then the longer-term impact of businesses over time? Yeah, so digital transformation and migration to public cloud is clearly not a new theme. It's a theme that we have been thinking about very seriously as a team for some time. We're reflected already in some of our portfolio positioning as well. I do think COVID serves to accelerate it from two angles, if you like. So first, from an infrastructure perspective, the idea of managing your own equipment on-premises is less desirable, as has been highlighted by the pandemic and the difficulties associated with that. So that's a further impetus to switch to public cloud. And then I would say also from the application side, the idea of having applications available, accessible on mobile, on cloud, rather than only through a corporate PC network. Again, I think the advantages of that have been particularly highlighted during this period. So we do think that an existing very strong trend which has been further accelerated. Now, in terms of trying to quantify it, we do have a proprietary tracker, which our technology analysts look at, which effectively monitors enterprise IT spending, public cloud spending, tries to assess the market size and the penetration. And our assessment is that currently the addressable market is around about $1 trillion. 
and it's roughly 20% penetrated as of today. And it was already growing at 30% a year even prior to COVID. So our forecast is that that 20% goes to 40% by 2026, which is a bit of an upgrade on where we were pre-COVID as a result of some of these accelerating trends that Susan mentioned as well. Just everything gets fast-forwarded a bit more. So if you think about just the magnitude of the market size, and so going from 20% to 40% of a trillion-dollar market is obviously a massive opportunity in terms of kind of dollars of available addressable market. So probably Susan can talk in much more detail about some of the examples, maybe of some of the corporates that are well-positioned to benefit from that very large opportunity. That's great. A perfect segue, like you say, Mark. Susan, from a portfolio management perspective, who are the winners and losers here? So actually, before discussing the winners and losers, I just want to share one anecdote. And I think it's an example of a faster adoption of digital applications. So the mortgage department of J.P. Morgan Chase was planning to roll out DocuSign over the next 12 months. And DocuSign, as you know, offers a way to sign paperwork electronically. And in a world of social distancing, the Chase IT department rolled out DocuSign within one week. And they did it so fast because they had no other options. Accordingly, they have the right infrastructure enables them to do it quickly. So as Mark mentioned, in the past, some CIOs were reluctant to move their mission-critical workloads to the cloud. But then when COVID hit, they realized that it's more challenging to manage the data centers because people have to be there physically during a lockdown. So COVID may change their mind. The total addressable market may be even bigger post-COVID. And scale is another big issue as more people, pretty much everybody working from home, the legacy infrastructure can now scale up and down to accommodate more volatile demand patterns. So the obvious winners are the big three public cloud providers, Amazon, Microsoft, and Google. And our revenue was $55 billion last year. And Amazon AWS was $35 billion. And over the next Three years, our research analysts expect their clouds to grow over 20% and 30% respectively. And mathematically, because cash flow streams got pulled forward, the net present value, or NPV, should be higher. But unfortunately, this is not breaking news, right? The market is more appreciative of this view today versus just a few months ago. We can all see the cloud beneficiaries outperformed S&P significantly year-to-date. But besides the big three, there are many ways to play this trend. And AMD and NVIDIA, these companies provide semiconductor components to the hyperscale data centers. And software providers sitting on top of the infrastructure layer, such as Salesforce and Workday. And also, there is a long list of the smaller, high-flying, fast-growing SaaS companies are all beneficiaries of this trend. And by the way, many of them are trading at double-digit price-to-sales ratio these days. And also, the IT services companies will benefit from this theme. But on the other hand, who are the losers? Who are on the wrong side of the change? We think the stronger cloud comes at expense of all the legacy on-prem providers, such as IBM, Hewlett Packard, NetApps of the world. And one of the research firms estimates that $1 of incremental cloud revenue resulted in about 2 to $3 of decline in the revenue of legacy lenders. 
So take Hewlett of the world as an example. Two-thirds of Hewlett's profits was generated by printing last year. And the printer hardware revenue have declined 5% per year over the past five years. And COVID, as you know, forced millions of people like you and me to work from home. And I don't know about you, because we use virtual desktops, which connects to the network printers back in our office, I haven't printed anything for over four months. And humans are creatures of habit. So even when we go back, eventually, one day, we will print less than before, which is calling into the question the long-term viability of a printing business. So I think I'm going to stop here and I'll pass it back to Mark. And maybe, Mark, you have some examples from international perspective. Yeah, so clearly um, the sort of direct beneficiaries, the big three are the big U.S. companies, which you're all familiar with and which Susan mentioned. But if you look in other bits of the supply chain, I think the international companies that benefit the most from this, I would highlight semiconductor TSMC, which makes the chips, which drives the computer intelligence behind the infrastructure, and which is really gaining market share, has a very strong position in the kind of leading edge chips in that area. And then, again, sitting behind TSMC is ASML, which is a leading manufacturer of the equipment which is used by TSMC and the other semiconductor companies. So, in effect, the rising tide of cloud adoption benefits, I think, the strong companies all the way down the value chain, and as I say, including some of those international names. Mark, you just touched on the topic of supply chains. This pandemic gives many companies the opportunity to rethink their supply chains, whether that means diversifying suppliers or bringing production closer to the end consumer. Susan, what are your thoughts on this localization of supply chains from a portfolio manager point of view? Are there any particular trends worth mentioning there? Yes, thanks, Rich. Again, the supply chain issue is nothing new, and it has started since the last election and further intensified during the U.S.-China trade war. For example, Walmart purchased $250 in domestic products over a 10-year period through 2023, and then he has this initiative called Investing in American Jobs. And as a part of this initiative, the company opened its first U.S. food production facility in Indiana. But COVID-related shortages have given companies the real urgency to reevaluate their supply chains and to make them more localized. And we saw that two months ago, the company Mark just mentioned, Taiwan Semiconductors, which is the largest foundry in the world, announced its intention to spend $12 billion to build a facility in Arizona. And this facility, this plant, will enable Apple and Qualcomm's of the world to fabricate their semi-products domestically. But whenever there's a change, there are going to be risks and opportunities. So let's start with the risk. Since China joined WTO 20 years ago, the profit margins of U.S. manufacturers almost doubled from 9% to 17% during the past two decades. And this largely savings associated with global outsourcing. And that profit pool, that profit support could reverse quickly and materially if we don't do it right because we could face wage inflation and overcapacity. And rebalancing supply chains, especially away from China, is not that easy, because China's infrastructure and access to electricity, transportation, and the labor supply is still very competitive. So companies need to manage it carefully. And take Apple as an example. Apple uses Foxconn to assemble most of its products, and Foxconn has 
1.5 million workers just to work on Apple products, and mostly located in Shenzhen, China. Obviously, there's a geographical concentration risk here. And Foxconn, by the way, is a world-class operator, and Apple has been very happy with them. We actually recently had an opportunity to catch up with the CFO of Apple during our virtual Silicon Valley bus tour. And Luca said to us he was very impressed by how quickly and how smoothly Foxconn was able to bring its facility back online post-COVID. And by the way, assembling Apple products is actually a very complicated process. It needs special training. So even Apple wants to diversify, it may take years. So who's going to benefit? Who's going to make money on all this localization or diversification of supply chain? Vietnam as a country is one of the big winners. I was traveling in Vietnam last summer when the U.S.-China was in the middle of a phase one negotiation. The hotels in Ho Chi Minh City were packed with Western business people. And from a stock perspective, some capital goods companies will benefit from rearrangement of manufacturing capacities. Remember, one person's spending is another person's revenue. And companies specialized in automation and robotics will benefit from this trend. And in U.S., Rockwell Automation is a good example. They provide software and customized solutions for new facilities and also to fix the existing facilities, as well as sensing and motor control devices. But I think majority of the automation companies are in Europe and in Japan. Maybe, Mark, you can share some examples in the international markets. Yeah, sure. I would say factory automation is really another great example of an accelerated structural trend. And I think it's both from a pandemic resilience perspective, i.e. the idea of replacing human labor in the context of social distancing is clearly good from a resilience perspective. But then also to this point that Susan's been talking around, around cost savings. And I think as one of the European companies we spoke to recently commented that the making significant investment in automation is really seen as the only way that you can make manufacturing in higher cost countries competitive, vis-a-vis China and some of the other EMs. And I think maybe just to give some data points on that, so I think it's a trend which has been already accelerating as wage costs in China have risen, and they're up three times over the last 10 years, so it is an existing trend. But if we look, for example, at the robot density that we see in industrial manufacturing, this is basically the number of robots per 100 workers on average. So for China, the number is 0.7. For Japan and Germany, the number is more than three. For Korea, the number is more than six. For the US, interestingly, actually, it's a bit lower. It's slightly less than two, albeit still much higher than China. So we do see this as being a very clear accelerating trend. As Susan mentioned, there are a lot of strong players internationally, particularly in Japan and in Europe. I think one name in Japan I particularly highlighted is the company Keyence. So this is a global leader in manufacturing sensors that are used for factory automation. So it's a very good high-margin business, innovative company, well-managed, etc. Overseas business growing very quickly as this trend plays out. And there are several other well-positioned examples in Europe, I think, as well. Schneider Electric would be one that I would particularly highlight there. Great. One quick kind of common theme that I've seen through this pandemic, and Mark, you know, we've seen companies with strong quality characteristics perform well through the pandemic. As global head of research, how are you approaching this idea that the strong will keep getting stronger and the weak will get weaker? 
I think this is a theme that's really run through a lot of the work that we've done around COVID, and we tried to some extent encapsulate it in the quote that we gave at the front of the white paper from Andy Grove, the former Intel CEO, around how bad companies are destroyed by crisis, good companies survive, and great companies are improved by them. And I think that's something that we've really seen, and I think it makes sense, A, from the perspective of acceleration of existing trends, so i.e. the winners from an industry perspective become the winners to a greater extent, so that's consistent with the theme. And I think also just from the perspective of, in the face of a crisis, having scale and having balance sheet strength and the ability to continue investing is something that's a very valuable thing. So if we go back to our favorite example of Taiwan Semiconductor, which just happened to report results, that despite all of what you might think as the headwinds in the world, they reported 20% revenue growth, 53% gross margin, and they've upped their capex for the year to 16 to 17 billion US dollars. So they're able to really invest through the crisis in order to further increase their competitive advantage, which I think is a very privileged position to be in, to be able to do that. So from a research perspective, to to come back to the slightly more general question, one of the things that we spend a lot of time thinking about and having our analysts do work on is just thinking within a common framework around corporate quality. So we've introduced a tool which we call strategic classifications. So this is something we've rolled out globally. So across all of the two and a half thousand companies that we cover globally across both emerging markets and developed markets. And we have a framework for thinking about corporate quality in terms of the economics of the business, the durability, i.e. the franchise strength and the ability to continue compounding value over time, and then the governance of the business, i.e. are we confident in management, ownership structure, etc. And we find that framework has been very helpful through this crisis. And ultimately, we classify companies into one of four different categories, with at the top the very, what we call premium businesses, the very best businesses. And a lot of the examples that we've talked about already on this call would fall into that category of premium businesses. And then at the bottom end, what we call the structurally challenged businesses. So these would be in some of the industries that Susan was talking about earlier, some of the, if you like, the clear structural losers from this. And we have found, as you would expect, across the kind of MSCI world universe, the companies that we think of as the premium quality businesses that have comfortably outperformed the others during this period. And clearly, we need to think about other things like valuation as well. But just as having a common framework for really getting the analysts thinking around corporate quality in that kind of manner is something that we find very useful across the research team globally. And so, Susan, Mark just touched on the strategic classifications as a portfolio manager. How do you utilize the strategic classifications to make investment decisions? I think it's a very useful tool in my toolbox, and it's a complementary to our valuation process. In the past, PMs and analysts have always considered aspects of quality and durability when we deciding whether to invest in the company or deciding on the best side. But still, we didn't really have a formal structure around it in the past. So I think strategic classification is a very good solution. Also, Mark just quoted Andy Grove, the founder of Intel, and he talked about that companies are destroyed by crisis and good companies survive it, great companies improve by it. So I think it's critical for us, especially now than ever, to work with our research team to identify the bad, which is structurally challenged, the good, which is the quality companies, and also the great ones, the premium companies. So to Mark's point earlier, and Richard, you mentioned this too, the basket of premium and quality companies outperformed. The basket of trading and structurally challenged companies during this period in the past five months by almost 15% in the case of U.S. 
So given I have the flexibility of sorting in our 130-30 strategies, I find the category structurally challenged very useful, especially if in identifying long-term short candidates. And it gives me much higher conviction and gives me stronger staying power. And for example, the department stores, without naming the names, you all know who they are, they're classified as structurally challenged companies. And we've been underweighting and shorting these companies through thick and thin, and despite the volatility of their stock prices. And on the other hand, the auto part retailers within U.S., such as O'Reilly and also AutoZone, they are classified as a quality and a premium because they have a strong competitive mode. And these are the great long-term investments in our portfolios. Mark, do you have a couple of examples maybe from EM? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Susan. I would say the emerging markets, we've worked with this concept of strategic classifications for the last 10 years or so. And I think I would say in emerging markets, you get a particularly broad range of corporate quality. So even within the same country and within the same sector, there can be an enormous spread between the best businesses and the worst businesses to the extent that the corporate skill really is the biggest driver of return. So a good example of that would be a company like HDFC Bank in India. So it's in India, which is a country, as many of you are aware, is facing some challenges at the moment associated with COVID and other issues. And it's in the banking sector, which is a sector which, you know, traditionally one wouldn't think as being very resilient to some of the threats that we're seeing at the moment. But in fact, all of that is overwhelmed just by the fact that HDFC Bank is vastly superior to a lot of the other banks in India, is gaining a lot of share, has a completely different client base and a completely different level of underwriting skill versus a lot of its competitors, and therefore has compounded value year after year after year, notwithstanding the kind of external pressures on the banking sector in India, etc. So that's an example of a premium business, not in a premium industry, but just a premium business with the real kind of differentiation coming through the corporate skill versus the competition. And as I say, you tend to see starker divisions within emerging markets probably than you do within the developed world. Great. Mark and Susan, I want to thank each of you for your thoughts and perspectives today. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional, wholesale, professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from J.P. Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only, based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. 
JP Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of JP Morgan Chase and & Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by JP. Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https colon slash slash am dot jpmorgan.com slash global slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities in the United States by JP Morgan Investment Management Inc. or JP Morgan Alternative Asset Management Inc. Both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in Latin America for intended recipients use only by local JP. Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by JP Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by JP Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management Europe S. A. Grave R.L., in Asia-Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Asia-Pacific, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or J.P. Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, No. 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.